The Mahe Mysteries is brought to you in association with Seychelles Tourism from the land of tradition, mystery and endless surprise. For more information, visit www.seychelles.travel. Mahe Mysteries, investigated by Patrick Muirhead, inspired by real events on a remote tropical island, but all characters and action depicted are imaginary. All that remains. Episode 7 Indigestion. It's an inheritance, I've always believed. My father was a martyr to gastric acidity, popping Gaviscon tablets like a child with a bag of pear drops. As I stepped through the east door of Notre Dame du Perpetuel Secours at Pointe-sur-Celle, it seemed to my grumbling digestive system that inherited characteristics were looming large in what I now realized with escalating concern and accompanying flatulence was a growing web of family secrets. What had seemed an inconsequential detail, the matter of the red T-shirt that Samuel had been sporting a few days earlier, a colour that any impassioned LDS supporter would have firmly spurned in favour of green, apparently now confirmed his parentage. Born out of wedlock, shushed away to an orphanage, his birth more scandalous for the mother because he was mixed race. And that he was also colourblind to shades of red and green was also clear. And a deep understanding of genetics isn't necessary to know the colourblindness chromosome is a mostly male affliction that's passed down the mother's line. As the Comtesse had innocently told Sebastien and me of whisky a few nights earlier, her late husband, Angelique's father, had had no colour sense. So beyond any reasonable doubt, and laboratory tests could easily prove, Samuel was Angelique's child. The priest was kneeling before the altar of the deserted church, not clad in liturgical vestments, but wearing his daily ministry attire of charcoal grey clerical shirt and dark trousers, the soles of his tidy lace-ups pointing down the central aisle, heels touching. I lingered in a shadowy transept for a while, watching as he whispered to the divinity and genuflected before rising slowly without turning. I approached quietly from behind and stepped up beside him, both of us gazing up at the painted crucifixion scene before us, bathed in coloured rays of a tropical noon. We can talk, uh, but not here, he said. I'll tell you what you want to know, his eyes not diverting from the image of Christ's suffering. But there will be only one judge, he said. He turned, glanced at me without saying more, and led the way unsteadily out of the church 
and into the garden. We climbed the slope and sat together on a bench beneath a mango tree, broken and scattered fruit around our feet, along with a sharply organic miasma of rotting and decline that brought to mind past hangovers and morning after regret. A dyspeptic inferno was raging inside me, and I reached into the pocket of my shorts, praying that I might find some soothing antacids there, and blessed relief that I was out of luck. Marie's Ozis phoned me last night, said Pamolis. She told me you were asking about St. Elizabeth and Samuel. I must make penitence for my omission. You knew that Samuel was Angelique's child and that he was alive? Of course, said the priest. One can never forget such things. But I, we, made a pact never to mention it for his sake, for his mother's sake, for his grandmother's. I was placed under an obligation to the family to which perhaps I should never have agreed. But the Comtesse made a commitment and I made mine, and we have both lived with these, made in the sight of God, these twenty years past. And he alone will judge us. A vow of silence, I said. Exactly so, the old man replied. You can put it this way. I can perfectly well imagine why the Comtesse wanted to hush this up, I said. Reputational damage, if any of it had come out, would have destroyed them. Perhaps even run them off the island of France or wherever Angelique was spirited away to afterwards. Oh, bright girl, they got her into the Sorbonne in Paris, and she's done well. Very well, I said. And who would ever guess that the redoubtable principal secretary at Internal Affairs would have experienced such a misfortune? A woman so much admired and universally trusted that she survived regime change and prospered. The priest looked down at his bony hands and stroked the liver spots there. It's come at a terrible price for her to preserve her good name. They kept her away for many years, but as they say here, once you have tasted the breadfruit, you will always return. So many Sichuan go away, but they must come back. They can never stay away. We are island people, whether born high or low. We cannot leave our beloved land forever. We are drawn back like the nesting ox spill to the beach of our birth. But of course, when Angelique returned after a few years, both her difficulties had disappeared. She has made no attempt, to my knowledge, to reunite with her child. Terrible tragedy for both of them. If all she cared about was her career, which I frankly doubt, then she must be satisfied with her mother's actions. We cannot interfere. Both? I asked. I understand that the newborn Samuel was taken from her and placed at St. Elizabeth. But what was the other difficulty? You said there were commitments given by both sides, from you and from the Comtesse. He looked at me with roomy eyes and wrapped one frail palm within the other. 
Well, he said there was the matter of the baby's father, don't you see? I scanned his face, uncertain what I might find, by asking, Who was he? He was that rogue Toto La Fortune, of course, he said. Toto? The gardener of the Duchalis estate? The one who Samuel told me had disappeared before he was born? The man that Angelique's sister insisted had been sacked, and most likely on account of his political support for the then-opposition. The priest drew a breath wearily. Toto did not simply disappear, and he was not dismissed. This is not true, my journalist friend, he said, and with all my prayers I wish him peace, and the shame I bear for agreeing to shelter the truth is all too great. I remembered the church investigation that had led to Père Maurice's suspension, the insinuating graffiti that had been daubed on the sacristy at pointe of seine and the hint he had given me in the previous days about a past transgression in his early ministry. I sensed a tenuous link was about to strengthen. You know what happened to him? I asked. Sadly, I know not only his fate, but also the hand that took his life, said the priest. He's dead. He is with our father, I pray so. And the Countess, she made a commitment to conceal this? She did, and I shall be damned for it. I have been damned for it. And perhaps she, too. His voice was stronger with each word of expiation. I told you that I was not the man then that I am now, and that was the truth. That I am guilty of terrible sins, committed in weakness, when the path of true peace and eternal love was still a mystery to me. Doubt and disbelief held my tongue, but the priest pressed on. I made a terrible youthful misjudgment too, and Toto was a most persuasive and charming man, but always getting in fights, making trouble for himself. He was missing a front tooth, but he was a handsome man, I must say, and I allowed myself to succumb to a satanic temptation for which I alone must bear all blame. He was poor, and I was weak. It was an unfortunate crossing of our pathways. I gave him the money he wanted, and he in turn gave me what I thought in that fleeting moment of desire I needed. Please do not ask me to provide every detail. This you can imagine for yourself. It was shameful. I knew it. And I prayed hard for weeks, even months afterwards, desperate for absolution. Of course, I could tell no one, not even the church. And then, Toto began to attend mass. He came to me drunk pleading for more money, and promising that a few rupees would seal his lips. 
And you gave him the money? I asked. We met again at the clergy residence one evening after the housekeeper had left us. I wanted to appeal to his better nature, but he spoke threats. He was always drunk. There was a fight, and I pushed him. One terrible loss of self-control after another, and he fell, striking his head. He was out cold, not breathing. I was left kneeling next to his body, quite lifeless. It must have been the shock that paralyzed me. My mind was in disarray. You killed him, I said, by pushing him. He was cold to touch. And I knew I had committed a mortal sin for which there could be no forgiveness, no true absolution. But then, as a young priest at that time, I dreamed so much of doing good. I was making progress in the parish, helping those most in need. I could not throw myself upon the mercy of this mortal life in the courts of justice. Not then. But you had a body in the residence. What happened to it? The moment has come for me to face this reality at last, so I will tell you, he said, all in good time. But first, you must take us to another place. With that, he rose and beckoned me to accompany him. We walked down to where I had parked the moak next to the church, and the old priest slid awkwardly into the passenger's seat. My instructions were to drive to the de Chalice estate, and I complied, silence falling between us as I steered the little car back over the mountain. For him to choose me as his confessor was not so much a surprise. In moments of emotional turmoil and loss, journalists know well the exceptional ease with which the most personal and poignant memories are unfurled by grieving loved ones whose willingness to talk is often boundless. We parked at the cottage, the tethered dogs going berserk in their quest for attention, but their barking soon faded behind us as Père Maurice led me deep into the plantation behind the beach house. Presently, he stopped and looked around quietly, delving into his memories. It was here, I think, he said, but I cannot be certain. It's so long ago. Here, you say? Toto is here somewhere? This is where we brought him, Bernard Jolicoeur and me. Maria Lise had sent him, and this is where she told us we must bring him. It was not easy. He was a big man. But Bernard, he was not long back from serving in the UK military. He had the strength of two men. This is where the Comtesse said we should come. And for that, you see, she made her commitment. She wanted bargaining power. And she got it. She promised never to breathe a word of what had happened to Toto if I returned her promise with my own. It was a dirty deal, 
constructed by evil and foolish hearts in moral darkness and in this place. Where exactly? I looked around at the dense undergrowth. The priest gestured towards the old path, Toto's path, that had been overwhelmed by saplings and rampant via, each competing for a small, life-giving glimmer of sun. It was the ancient pathway that the Countess had insisted should never be reopened, never trodden again. The gloaming world, where the priest's deadly secret was hidden, the time and nature had all but erased, though not completely. It brought to my mind again the words of the English verse that I'd recited to Samuel. Only the keeper sees that where the ringdove broods and the badgers roll at ease, there was once a road through the woods. There surely were here, far away from Kipling's England, no ringdoves nor badgers, only Tourtrell and Tenrex. But there most certainly was a keeper, if not Toto, then another who knew the path's history and had given her instructions. The Mahe Mysteries was created by Patrick Muirhead and Lindsay Farabo. It was written, narrated, and produced by Patrick Muirhead. Music was by Isham Rath. It was an operculum media production recorded on location in Mahe Island, Seychelles. The Mahe Mysteries is brought to you in association with Seychelles Tourism from the land of tradition, mystery and endless surprise. For more information, visit www.seychelles.travel. Hello everyone. My name is Tom Kearns and I host the Anglo-Saxon England podcast, where I cover the history and culture of England from the departure of the Romans in the 5th century to the Norman Conquest in 1066. So far we've surveyed the collapse of Roman rule in Britain, the migration of the Anglo-Saxons and the history of Northumbria from its beginnings in the mists of legend to its destruction at the hands of Viking raiders in the 9th century. I hope you'll come and give it a go.